Hello, and welcome to Mother Daughter Earthcast, a show that will help you navigate the eco world and live a more colorful and conscious life. We'll inform, inspire, and embolden you. And most importantly, we'll have fun along the way to a more planet-caring lifestyle together. There were prairies all throughout the East, even on Long Island, all the way to the coast. There were coastal prairies, even among the forests, the mountains. There were prairies, there were grasses, even in deep East Texas. There were grasses everywhere. In the 1800s, people knew this. America was a grassland nation. And I thought if people were more aware of how endangered these prairies were, that more people would care about them. Welcome back to another episode of Mother Daughter Earth Cast. This is Mariana. And I'm Jenna. And today we will be talking with Matt White, an author, a professor, and his book is titled Prairie Time, A Black Land Portrait. And he just made prairies come alive for me. I will have to say, and I mentioned this, if not in the public portion, I mentioned it in the in the Patreon private bonus episode, but I will have to say I wasn't a massive prairie fan before. I value all ecosystems and the role that they play in our natural world, but I wasn't necessarily partial to prairies and he just made them come alive. Yes. He, his, his mission is prairies. (laughs) Amazing. And they're so important. They are so important. And he's so incredibly knowledgeable and I've just never met a prairie hunter before. I know. (laughs) And Matt's a prairie hunter. And Mariana and I were talking about why people don't talk about prairies that often. People get inspired and talk about the oceans or the mountains or rivers or whatnot, but no one talks about prairies. And I was saying, well, it might be because not very many people have seen prairies anymore. I believe the uh, the number that's given in Ma- uh, in Matt's book is that in Texas we have one tenth of one percent of the remaining black land prairie intact in Texas, which is not much. It's sad. It reminds me of old growth forests and how mm-hmm. I don't think we really know or have seen ancient trees and can fathom and recognize how majestic they can be because they're just not around anymore. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But at least you can still see trees in a forest where you can't even see the prairie anymore. Mm -hmm. And prairie requires space to be impactful, at least. Matt does talk about in this, in our conversation with him, how even small pockets of prairie can be really helpful ecosystems but to have an impact and a visual you know bam (laughs) you need the space I think yes in fact you even talked about him about about maybe planting a little area in your yard with prairie oh yeah well Toby does listen to our (laughs) podcasts (laughs) so I can't keep this secret for much longer (laughs) but I'm hoping to try to convince him to have prairie strips Yeah, you know, the front inside of our yard. We'll see. (laughs) Okay, Toby, we're looking forward to hearing what you say about that. (laughs) Yeah, whoops. (laughs) (laughs) So, Mariana, talking about your yard, Mm -hmm. how how did your yard fare after our 
horrible weather here in Texas. And I know that y'all have heard that y'all heard about all this snow and electrical outages and the water issues. Boy, did Texas get hammered with that snow and it got down to minus two degrees Mm -hmm. in Dallas, which it had not gotten down that low since 1949. I know. And Matt actually talks about that too. Oh man, Matt talks about a lot of things, but my yard, um, well, you know, mom, how worried I was. Yes, you were. I was really worried. Yeah. I could, I can sometimes get into a little frantic spiral. Mom describes it as me getting wound up and that was definitely, I was winding myself up. (laughs) Why? Yes, you were. (laughs) But I was, I just care. And for those of y'all who heard our episode with Jennifer Jewell, we talk about how you really do form a a friendship with your plants. And I can say, man, if 10 year old me heard me say this, I'd be like, you crazy. (laughs) But I can definitely say that I've formed a strong bond and relationship with the plants in my yard. And I was really worried because there was, there was a good chance that they would die, especially Mm -hmm. even if I covered, we covered as much as we could and we just hoped and prayed for the best. And we've also joked around on the podcast, you might have heard this, that I like to transplant things and move things around. And this past year, because of COVID, was an especially busy transplanting <laughs> year. <laughs> and so not many of my plants are truly established yet. So that was concerning to me. And my neighbors, shout out to Lexi. They're so sweet. And they were checking in on me and my mental state of <laughs> plants, plant worry. And I, I was telling Lexi specifically that that first freeze day that it got really bad. I think yeah. the first day was, you know, okay, in the 20s, but that first like freaking single digits minus what whatever degrees, I was really having a hard time and sad because and I don't even think I've told you this, but it, things went quiet and I know I don't I can't describe it like you have said that you can hear plants mm-hmm. and like an internal audible for me it's just like a, they, I feel I feel them like I feel like they're the plant energy y'all can forward through this if this is too crazy or out there for you but that first freeze day it was just quiet it was like Interesting. nothing was there almost you'd almost you know when I went to the salt flats mm-hmm. over the Christmas break Mm -hmm. and it was quiet out there and that was great it was very calming but in my own yard I don't particularly feel that very often Mm -hmm. and so that's how it felt it felt quiet and that was really sad because I thought I was like what is it this means that they're dying but after that first day I just kind of there's nothing else I could do it is what it is and then that fast forward five or six horrible brutal days Mm. (laughs) of lots of cold for us and more snow and and more more snow snow. yeah that first day we started to come out of it it wasn't above freezing but we had the sun and things were starting to melt a little bit Mm -hmm. I told Lexi it finally feels like champagne like the like the energy started like bubbling up a little bit and I was like I was like I have hope because I can feel energy like just bubbles like little little tiny bubbles um but I hadn't uncovered my plants yet so I was still just hopeful so anyways my plants seem to be okay uh there are a couple that I'm a little worried about but as mom keeps telling me, just have patience, which is not my best <laughs> attribute either. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to be okay. 
So that's the long answer to your question. Wonderful. Well, good. I love hearing about the bubbles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was like bubbles. I was like, oh, wait, that's a that's a little plant energy bubble. Oh, wait, that's another one. Oh, oh wait, there's lots of bubbles. Good, good. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was it was fun. And that that um, cleanup day was massive. I spent all day in the yard and we lost all of our veggies, but that's OK veggies come and go <laughs> and mm. I do love my veggies I'm very grateful for them but I was really worried about my perennials and the ones that were in the ground so yeah well good good I'm glad you have some good stories and I'm looking forward to springtime when the cork comes off the champagne bottle yes exactly <laughs> the cork comes off and may maybe some prairie strips get put in yeah <laughs> Toby what do you think <laughs> anyway keep an open mind Toby because now you can listen to Matt White talk about the marvels of prairies. Exactly. Thanks, Mom. Thanks for putting in that little plug with Toby. <laughs> well, Any, anytime. <laughs> Perfect transition to our guest. And if y'all want to learn even more about prairies after you listen to this episode, which I'm sure you will, Matt has continued to share stories and information even after publishing his book. So check his blog out. It's called More Prairie Time. And without further ado, please welcome Matt White, the author of Prairie Time, a Blackland Portrait to Mother Daughter Earthcast. Well, today we have the privilege of visiting with Matt White, and he is a college professor, and he is an uh, author. He wrote a fabulous book, Prairie Time, and I curled up during our bad weather one Sunday in front of the fire and read it, and it was a wonderful, wonderful read. I learned so much. There was, I love how you wove together, together. history and ornithology. And and uh, now I get calls from my mom with prairie <laughs> updates all the time. <laughs> Just, it's a wonderful book. So thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Well, thank you for the nice word. It's a pleasure to speak with both of you and to meet your daughter. And I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, so let's start off with how did you get involved with the prairie? How did your passion get going? And, you know, just some of your background. Well, that's a good question. And I guess any kid who roams the woods and the pastures, as I did, you, you ask yourself, what was here first? What came before all this? And maybe you wonder about the Native Americans, in this case, the Caddo. And you wonder, what did it look like? You know, the buffalo. And those were questions I had. I didn't know that that was even knowable. And in high school, I guess that would be the best place to answer this. We had to do a wildflower collection. Mm. Seventh grade. We had to learn the Latin names of, I believe it was 20 or 30 species. We had to press wow. them. And we started in spring. It was probably around spring break. We had to go out. And he would take us out, our, our Mr. Our biology teacher was named Mr. Gary Crow. He's still living. He would take us out and we would collect these wildflowers and we would press them in books. And when they were dry, then we would glue them onto the index cards. And we had the names. And well, he would look the names up in his Schinner and Mahler Spring Floor of North Central Texas, which was self-published or published by SMU Press. It was a green book. 
I later found one at a used bookstore and I have it just for sentimental purposes. <laughs> and we had to learn the Latin names of these flowers. And it got me thinking. And later, when the Schinner and Mahler's book was updated in 1999 by the people of BRIT, the Botanical Research mm-hmm. Institute of Texas, it really piqued my interest. Now I can know these flowers. I can know more of what they are. And I began wondering, where are you going to find the most flowers? Where are you going to find the most prairie? I guess the idea of a prairie being something that was not plowed up. The Nature Conservancy had a couple of prairies, and I decided to go look at them. And it, it took some courage to do it because finally I drove over to one. I think it was, I think it was the Paul Matthews Meadow, I think was the first one. Mm-hmm. Um which is west of Greenville in Hunt County. And I was just blown away by all the flowers out there. And I started talking to a couple of people. I worked with a guy named David Montgomery. I don't think he's living anymore. And he worked at Paris Junior College and in Paris. And, and he was sort of a prairie guy himself. And so I started picking his brain. And I started realizing, what if I could find my own? The literature said there were only like 5,000 acres left or something. And I thought, you know, I bet that's not right. I bet there are more out there. And I started driving around and I started finding them. Mm. And then I'm like, I need to write a book. And I didn't know what I was going to write. I thought I was going to write some kind of encyclopedia. But (laughs) books just take on a life of their own when you start writing them. It's like, a, I don't know, it's just like magic. I don't know how to explain it. It just happens. And people would show up and call me and say, you know, you need to know me. I have a prairie. I guess word got out. This was before the Internet. I didn't even have, I mean, I probably did have email, but it, nobody had smartphones back in the late 90s. You know, it was uh-huh. really, it was just this organic thing. And I, I had done a book on birds already for Texas A&M University Press. And, and Shannon Davies, just retired, wonderful lady. I said, you know, I want to write a book about prairies. And she said, please do. And I would call her and say, you know, you don't believe what happened. And she said, well, you were meant to write this book. You were meant to write this book. I probably bugged the heck out of her because every time I'd find another one, I would be like, you can't believe what happened. You can't believe what happened. And she would be, well, this, this was a sign you were supposed to write this book. And she was so gracious. And uh, actually, if you want to know more about her, she's a, a good person to talk to as well. She just retired from A&M. She hadn't been at UD, um, the editor there. And she rose all the way up to be their press editor, but yeah, wonderful relationship and, and encouragement. And, th- and that's really how the book came to be. When I started, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had an idea that I wanted to make people aware. I can remember sitting on my bed thinking, how do I say this? If you have an advocacy for something, a lot of people advocate for things, you know, feed the children or you know some, some advocacy group. And I thought if people were more aware of how endangered these prairies were, that more people would care about them. That, that was really what motivated me um, to write the book was to bring this to people's attention that we have these little bitty fragments of Mm -hmm. this ancient landscape in our midst. And we've lost so many just since I wrote Prairie Time. That's another story. I think you were. That's how it came to be. I think you were meant to write this book. And just listening to you and your story, it sounds like it is magical, which is amazing. <laughs> I And that segues pretty perfectly into the my main question. And honestly, if listeners just take away this message, I think it would be 
a great success, which is why should people care so much about prairies? What makes them unique and what makes them so vital to our ecosystems? And I just feel like many people don't really think about prairies too often. We think about mountains and forests and oceans, but prairies kind of seem to be left behind. (laughs) So from the prairie guy's perspective, what can you tell listeners in terms of this is why they're so important and this is why we should conserve them and save them? Well, I'm, I'm going to answer that in a little odd way, maybe an unusual way. (laughs) Um, It's a good question. It is the question. Why I care. Um, biodiversity, of course, that's the number one answer that people would give you. I'm going to, I'm going to go back a little further though and give a little more unconventional answer. And we can come back to the more conventional one in a minute. Um, Walt Whitman leaves of grass. This is kind of a weird thought, but he said, you know, America was a grassland country. It was a prairie nation. They say that a squirrel could go from the Atlantic coast to the great plains. And then when it got to the great plains, it got to the prairies, it, it would stop. Well, that's not actually true. There were prairies all throughout the East. New York, there were prairie chickens up there, even on Long Island, all the way to the coast. There were coastal prairies, even among the forests, the mountains. There were prairies, there were grasses, even in deep East Texas. There were grasses everywhere. In the 1800s, people knew this. America was a grassland nation. And the prairie, a word we borrowed from the French, was the place where, you know, we had never plowed. The plows had never been there. Maybe the buffalo had grazed it. Walt Whitman understood what that meant. And let me see if I can explain it. Great Britain was a nation of forests, and they cut their forests down and became a seafaring nation. They became a very mighty nation with ships. It took 60 or 80 acres to make one ship. Mm. Oh. Amazing when you think about it. It took 2,000 oak trees and 1,000 other trees to make a ship of the line at the time of the American Revolution. Britain spent their trees to become a world power. And on the eve of the Civil War, Walt Whitman in Leaves of Grass, which some people see it as sexual or lewd, it's really not, although there is some in there. But he says that the grass is the symbol of equality because it grows for the slave and or the the poor man as well as the rich man, the slave as well as the free. And I'm I'm paraphrasing that. Didn't really know I was going to go there, but um, I think we should care about prairies because they became a symbol. Even Walt Whitman said they were a symbol of equality. Interesting. I love that. I've never thought they of it historical. that historical. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to write that up somewhere. I'm going to write that up. I'm working on that, putting that in a in something. Um, so maybe you know maybe I shouldn't divulge too much to that. <laughs> but in the political climate that we are in right now. If we are blinded to our natural history, then we are blinded to ourselves. We don't see, we don't even see what makes America. Now, Walter Prescott Webb, who is the great Plains historian, said that the frontier, and Americans had a different idea of what frontier was. Frontier in Europe was the boundary between two countries. So the Rio Grande would be the frontier between Texas and Mexico. We don't say that in America. Frontier is an empty spot we migrate to mm. the prairies. Unfortunately, we lost some real good prairies in 2020. We lost the pioneer prairie in Mesquite. Um, been on the radar of conservationists for half a century. And in the end, warehouses beat it out. Ooh. Oh. It was the only little 
hundred acre swath left to go to in Mesquite. Part of the American ethos is we have unused land. And anytime there's unused land, we have this, it started at Jamestown. We're going to take more. We're going to go, we're going to go, we're going to go. And so that's why it's very difficult. It's almost un-American in some people's view to save a piece of property because it's really there for development. What I'm arguing is these prairies preserve the original country. They're older than any of us. They preserve the geology. They preserve the biology. They preserve the, you know, the bugs. They preserve the, the botany, the, the butterflies, the, 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 the real diversity that's there. Now, many of the pieces are missing. The fire is missing. The buffalo are gone. And, and so there are people trying to bring that back. But I, I think we were poor for having lost big chunks of the prairie. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I can add one more thought to that question. Please. Walt Whitman in Leaves of Grass, they, they understood what the grass was. Lincoln came along and said, and, and this is this is neither good nor bad. I'm not take, I'm not trying to be um, preach a sermon here, but Abraham Lincoln put a welcome mat to the world in front of the prairie in North America. And he said with the Homestead Act, as long as you have applied for citizenship, you are entitled to 160 acres of land if you have not waged war against the United States. That was the end of the prairies. The beginning of the end, not in Texas, but on the Great Plains. Mm-hmm. Railroad was the beginning of the end in Texas. So Lincoln, with the Homestead Act in May of 1862, opened up with a stroke of his pen, opened up a welcome, imagine not a wall, but a welcome map to the world saying, we stand for equality. And we spent our prairie, our prairie on an idea that if you were not a slaveholder, if you're willing to work hard and be and be free, that you could get ahead in life. So the prairie is the American dream. Wow. And it it was the breadbasket of our nation right. too. If you go to the store and you buy, you know, wheat or bread or corn or whatever. We we need the prairie because it fed us. We still need the, the rich topsoil story on KER today about how the, and, and people who've looked at prairies know this, the topsoil has gone. Yeah. The rich prairie earth is gone. You know, and so now we're using synthetic fertilizers, chemicals, petroleum, you know, we are what we eat, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, most definitely. Yeah. So that's a weird way to answer the question, but why do we preserve prairies? That's, that's why I think we should, because we're preserving a piece of that American equality. I love that. And it was way better than just a biodiversity answer. So thank you for that. It was history and equality and all this awesomeness roped into one answer. I can, t- I can tell you're a professor. <laughs> <laughs> and well, that, that's a bad word in some places. No, it's not a great, us. It's a great word for me. Yes, same here. So, okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> so you were talking about when you first got interested in prairies, you decided to get in the car and start looking for them. What If someone wanted to look for virgin prairies, how will they know that they're looking at a virgin prairie or a remnant of the original prairie? Well, there are indicator species plants that grow there the grasses the wildflowers most pastures are have been robbed of their floral diversity or their grasses um 
there's a signature. Once you see one, no two are alike. I, I've, I've seen a bunch. I'm not claiming to have seen them all of them because I haven't, but I've never seen two that are exactly alike. But there's something that they all share, and that is a footprint, an ecological footprint. That means the plants are there, and it's certain plants. May not be the same ones on every on every place, but there are certain plants that go away as soon as a place is plowed up. And so. in terms of what people can do, you know, when we're talking about reforesting, for example, everyone can feel like they're contributing by planting a tree. Or if we're talking about re establishing pollinator friendly areas and you can plant natives. But one thing when I was thinking about prairies, it seems a bit daunting, this idea of restoring because they do inherently need large spaces of land. And so what would you say to the average person like me living in Dallas and I have a yard, is there anything I can do other than supporting organizations that are restoring those larger areas of prairie? But is there anything I can do in my own home to help with prairie restoration? Absolutely. And, and you said it, you can support organizations, you can go on field trips, you can try to convert people. Those are all wonderful. Get educated, read books. You can also plant little prairies. And this is something I'm really kind of keen to start doing at some point, and that is building little six by six. That would be 36 square feet. Imagine if you had a little 36 square foot prairie in lockdown Mm -hmm. and a corner of a sidewalk, six foot by six foot or four by four that mirrored the prairie and you could watch it. It would be an almost spiritual existence. And I chose that word on purpose it would be an almost spiritual existence to see that every day i put prairie plants in my garden i'm, I'm pointing to imaginary uh, windows where things are planted which i built a prairie in my backyard it's i'm gonna say 70 by 40 it's an ellipse a long ellipse mm-hmm. kind of a football shape thing and it's about 15 years old now and i do nothing to it wow. i burn it occasionally um, and it, it should probably be burned soon. I, it's been two or three years since I burned it. And it could be burned easily right now. But it doesn't have weeds in it. It doesn't. I mean, I've got Bermuda grass around it. And it doesn't go in it. Bermuda yeah. grass goes in anything. Oh, yeah. It doesn't go in this. Why? It doesn't. It's too It's too thick. Can't live in there. Wow. Uh, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's really cool. But it, it's the only thing I've ever seen that will tell Bermuda grass sit down and shut up (laughs) i've never seen anything and that's coming from a landscaper here (laughs) yeah it really it really does it's unbelievable and i i didn't get it all out when i put it in because i couldn't it it literally it pushed it out it's too dark and the thatch that builds up i'm using my hands here it it builds up this thatch Uh that really excludes the bermuda grass and and then when you burn it which it's been a couple of years since i burned it um I wait till the grass, the tall grasses are dry and the grass is wet with dew and just burns and I don't even worry about it. Just, I'm, I'm in the country, so I don't have to worry about burn bans or anything. I, I wait till it's not windy to do it. Well, it, you've talked, um, you've mentioned the buffalo and fire, but can you talk about the five elements of the prairie, of the prairie other than the buffalo and the um in the fire in north texas and we're 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 
talking Dallas or the, the Blackland Prairie extended originally from, say, San Antonio. Was I call it a tornado, a tornado through Texas from Texas. I mean, from San Antonio all the way up to the Red River. And it got wide at the Red River. And it went down to a point at the very bottom. And that was true tallgrass prairie. As you went out into the hill country or further west, the grasses got shorter. That was all prairie, too. But the tall grass prairies need water, okay. lots of water. And it's cor- correlated roughly. And, and this is this is really rough, 30 to 32 inches to 34 inches of rainfall annually. So water, fire, buffalo, those are the, oh, and the, soil. the big ones. Well, obviously the soil. But see, that's a, that's a good question because the, the prairie begins to make its own soil. Yeah. And that's a real that's a real question. Did which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Mm-hmm. Because the prairie soil builds up. And let me tell you a story. I put in a little concrete cement driveway area, and about twenty years ago, I decided it was an old terrace from when this was farmland. It was a, it was a hump like that, maybe six feet, five feet wide, and I decided I wanted to put that in prairie grasses adjacent to the driveway and it's kind of a long linear area and i i put these grasses in and last fall before christmas i went out and looked at that and this this was absolutely incredible the grass roots had extended out onto the driveway a foot and there was four inches of soil under those grass roots they had built soil on top of the concrete, four inches in 20 years. Wow. And it was the most loose, rich, organic. It was the best designer soil I've ever seen. Wow. <laughs> the solution the solution to our lack of topsoil is we got to start planting prairie grasses. Let the hay, let the thatch decompose and, and build, build the prairie up, that, build the soil back that way. It, it, it's not dead tree mulch it's too acid it's it's prairie grass Mm. well if four inches of rich topsoil on top of concrete isn't showing you that they're doing work i don't know what is (laughs) and actually as you were talking i um I've been doing a lot of research and learning a lot about regenerative farming, and I think that's a big topic of conversation right now. Have you done any research or know much about the prairie's role in sequestering carbon? And because I, again, I think a lot of people go straight to planting trees as the method to help reduce CO2 in the atmosphere. But from the image you just described of them of the plants creating soil and having all this you know the rich biodiversity it seems like prairies could also do a really great job at sequestering carbon do you have you done any research on that well i think they do i I have not done any research on that remember i'm I'm more of a writer and a a grower and and an observer i'm really not qualified There, there is research about that though and i think it's essential that we preserve grasslands, open spaces, restore grasslands. Um, you're right. We do tend to think of you know, trees as sequestering carbon. But for a while, I've been convinced that prairies do the same thing. The, the roots of the prairie grasses, have you ever heard the term grassroots? Yes. A grassroots movement? Mm-hmm. It was because the prairie grass roots go down sometimes 20 feet. 
they're okay. firmly embedded and they they do things that I think are really miraculous almost they they create the the prairie grasses actually create the soil that the prairie grasses need that's amazing well one of the yeah. one of the comments that I loved in your book you wrote that you like to think of going in uh, hold on you like to think of yourself as going into the prairie instead of on the prairie. You know, like everyone thinks of uh, on the prairie because little house on the prairie, but you talk about going into it. Can you, what's the difference for you? And what's, what's that feeling that you're. You walk on the floor, but you go into a house. Mm -hmm. Mm, That's true. And the forest has a floor, but it also has a ceiling and walls, but because we'd be rather, tall taller than most plants we don't think of it that way we sort of tower over them but on many prairies the grasses were actually taller than us you can literally go into one without getting on your hands and knees it's really an experience when you get to do that there were there were tales of grassland prairies that person had to get on horseback to see over wow (laughs) my gosh i've never seen that and we ha- we visited the Climber Prairie about what two years ago, mm-hmm. and I've made, I have probably gone to a couple of others, but I've never seen the grasses that tall. It, it is something to see, it, and it's it's actually disorienting a little bit because it's sure. it's like going into a cornfield. You can visualize that. It would be easy to get turned around or lost. And I love that perspective change. And when you equated it to you walk on a floor, you go into a house. And again, I go back to it seems like inherently we give more value to a forest because we say you go into a forest, but you just walk on a prairie. And I think making that distinction of perspective is really important as part of our goal to have people care about the conservation of prairies we need to think of it as their own ecosystem that you're actually becoming a part of when you experience it you're not just walking on a prairie the way you would just walk on a lawn of bermuda grass (laughs) it's not the same i love that i love that well we my mom picked a little quote from your book that she loved and before we start winding down i'd love for you to touch on this. On page 180, it says, I will find a way to convince people that our natural heritage is a precious part of who we are and an important legacy we leave to our children. And that's something that you've mentioned already here and there in our conversation. And I think it's such an important point to make. And I want to follow up with the question, which we've touched on a little bit, but are there any specific people other than yourself, but people or organizations around the country that are trying to preserve the prairie or where can our listeners go and find these organizations that are doing work to help support restoring those ecosystems? I'll I'll confine my answer mainly to Texas. Okay. Um, There are nationwide organizations First, what I would say is the Native Prairie Association of Texas. They have a website which can be found easily. There are some wonderful volunteers, people working in there. There, there may be a couple of paid people 
but it's mainly volunteer people. Um, the Nature Conservancy historically has been interested in prairies, and, and they still have some people who are interested in helping preserve prairies. There, there are other national organizations not as familiar with them. There are some wonderful people in prairie conservation, though, I can tell you that. People that really believe that prairies need to be preserved. The biodiversity needs to be preserved. That's why I guess I take a more historical approach is because I want to show that, you know, I want to sort of separate my argument and say, and, and it's really just dawned on me since I wrote Prairie Time about how valuable they are to us as Americans and even to us as Texans. You know, I, I, I do a blog called More Prairie Time. And, and to be honest, after COVID hit, I have not been as diligent in doing that. MorePrairieTime.org. Um, the book is titled Prairie Time. And that came from my oldest daughter, Natalie, who we were going to Climber, not Climber Meadow, but Paul Matthews Meadow. We were going to Paul Matthews Meadow one evening and she said, Dad, I need more prairie time. I was searching for a, a title for the book, and it was like, wow, it went off in my head. That's it. Mm-hmm. But I didn't entitle it more prairie time. But then now I realize I've had so many people say, well, you know, we want more prairie time. You know, I want to experience more prairie time. And so I thought, well, that would be a good name for a blog. It might be a good name for a book, too. I don't know. I don't want to write the same book twice. But there are so many new stories that I could tell that maybe that'll happen at some point. I don't know. I just sort of tested the waters with the blog. And and so far, almost 40 people in almost 40 countries have looked at my blog. So Nice. That is fun. Well, I will obviously link the Nature Conservancy and Native Prairie Association of Texas in the notes so people can easily find those. We will, of course, have a link to your book, Prairie Time, A Blackland Portrait, and to your blog, moreprairietime.org. Is there any other places or ways that people can learn about your work or get in touch? I don't actually have a website. That's probably one of my number one complaints. I probably need to get a website at some point. People can always send me messages to my blog. That's how I got in touch okay. with you was, yeah. through, I, through your blog. I got in touch with yeah. you through your blog. Perfect. Yeah. We're actually revamping our website right now, Matt, too. So I I understand sometimes. The well, I don't even have one. I need one. And my, I have my, one of my daughters could really do one for me. So I need to get her to do it. Um, so, yeah, I, that's something I need to do. If she's um, if they're tech savvy enough to put a coca-cola background in your zoom so i'm pretty sure they can create a website (laughs) my my youngest daughter is pretty tech savvy i she yeah i'm the little plug for her there she's pretty good nice Um, get her get her on it (laughs) i think we've come down to our final question matt and we we ask this of every everyone who we get to visit with on our podcast but what do you think is the most important thing that each individual can do to reverse global warming and climate change well i think an awareness of choices And I really think supporting conservation and maybe even, and this is going to sound silly, and this is not because of your earlier question. I've actually been thinking about this. I think that putting in little pocket prairies in your backyard would be helpful. We just had, what was it, Snowmageddon? (laughs) The prairies are ready to go. 
that snow insulated. I actually packed my water meter box with prairie grass because I was afraid if we got down to minus zero, I went and opened my water meter box and it's you know in air. And I took prairie grass and I stuffed it in there and it, it helped prevent it from freezing. We didn't have any freeze. It's insulation for the soil. It's insulation for the insulation for the microbes. I, I think prairies, as well as you say, they may be good ways to sequester carbon. Planting plants it, it is, I think, a, a, a very humble start. But yeah, I think it is. Yeah. I am 100% there with you. And just creating those pockets, as you say, is such a great way that we can not only help reverse climate change, but also connect more with nature. And it's right there in your yard. And I think you called it a spiritual experience. And it's so true. It, they, it is. They do so many different things for us. And it, although seemingly humble beginnings, I think can have a huge impact and be very meaningful. So I love that answer, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> I know that I would, I don't know Thank what I, I don't know what I would have done without my garden during COVID. It, mm -hmm. it was such a, a refuge oh, yeah. for me. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. To watch the prairie plants. I have a few little prairie plants planted on the edge of the sidewalks and in little gardens mm -hmm. and the, to watch the plant grow, to watch it come up, to watch it begin to fruit or flower and then to fruit. It, it's really cool. It's really cool. It, it is a spiritual experience. It's, yeah. Well, that is the perfect segue. Listeners, for those of y'all who are with us over on Patreon, we are going to spend some more time with the amazing Matt White and talk to him about how he is restoring prairies, prairie space at his home and hear all his experiences and nuggets of wisdom and just talk, have more prairie time with him. So join us over there. And Matt, thank you so much again for your time. We really appreciate Appreciate your expertise and thanks for making prairies come alive in such a magical way for us. This was great. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it immensely. 